Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Stephen Brannan. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Today's gospel passage is one of the more famous um, to the general public, and one of the more familiar to uh, you know us regular church-going Christians. And the danger of feeling too familiar with a passage like this is that we may not pay as much attention to it as maybe we once did, assuming, you know, oh, I, I know this one. The parable portion of this passage especially is well-known, but I think it's probably only generally known in sort of a single dimension. The lesson is, be kind to everyone, or maybe it's, uh, you know, sometimes the kindest person is the one you'd least expect, or something like that. But this parable has several dimensions, and lessons for us that climb much higher than that flat morality lesson, lessons about salvation, about the incarnation, about human nature and anthropology, about the grand narrative of scripture, which is actually coextensive with the grand narrative of the whole cosmos. So to help us listen with fresh ears, I'm going to introduce to you St. Bede, often called the Venerable Bede, an English monk who lived from 672 to 735. He was a scholar who wrote the famous Ecclesiastical History of the English People, but he also wrote sermons and commentaries, and he translated a lot of older Latin and Greek texts for his Anglo-Saxon contemporaries. Bede is going to be our guide through this passage this morning, um, and he's going to lend us an ancient voice speaking to our modern ears about an even more ancient passage that has maybe lost some of its mystery out of our sheer familiarity with it. He starts in verse 23, where we began. And turning to his disciples, he said, Blessed are the eyes that see the things that you see. Not the eyes of the scribes and the Pharisees, Bede says, which see only the body of the Lord, only the humanity, but blessed are the eyes that can see and know his divine secrets, of which he said to the Father, Thou hast revealed them to the little ones. Blessed are the eyes of the children to whom the Son has deigned to give grace to know both himself and the Father. Continuing, For I say to you that many prophets and kings have desired to see the things that you see and have not seen them, and to hear the things that you hear and have not heard them. Abraham, your father, rejoiced that he might see this day. He saw it and rejoiced. Isaiah also and many other prophets saw the glory of God, because, and because of this they were called seers. But these only saw through a glass in a dark manner, beholding him and greeting him from afar, while the apostles had their Lord before their eyes, eating together with him, and by questioning him, learning whatever they wished to know. And they had no need whatever to be taught by angels or by any kind of vision. Those whom uh, Matthew more precisely calls the prophets and just men, here Luke speaks of as many prophets and kings. And then Bede says, For they are great kings because they learned how to rule the impulses of temptations, not yielding to themselves uh, in surrender, but not, uh, dominating and subjecting them. In other words, Bede is giving us some commentary saying that the old uh, prophets and kings of old were truly kings over their own uh, realm, their own bodies, their own selves, because they um, shunned uh, worldly temptations and the impulses 
of nature, and because of this, we're uh, able to, to see and be given prophecies by God. And he continues, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up, tempting him and saying, Master, what must I do to possess eternal life? B tells us, The lawyer who asked our Lord about eternal life, tempting him, took occasion to tempt him, I believe, from the Lord's own earlier words where he said, Rejoice in this, that your names are written in heaven. That comes from just a few verses before. But by this very temptation, he makes clear to us how true is the avowal of the Lord in which he says to the Father, Thou hast hidden these things from the wise and prudent, and has revealed them to the little ones. In other words, the lawyer, uh, B tells us, this wise and prudent man obviously doesn't see what's made very clear to these simple little ones, disciples of the Lord. But he said to him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? He answered, saying, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart and with thy whole soul and with thy whole strength and with thy whole mind and thy neighbor as thyself. In answering the lawyer, the Savior sets before us the perfect road to life of heaven. And to the man saying what is written in the law regarding the love of God and our neighbor, he says for the first time, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. And then, when he had related the parable, when the lawyer had replied that he was the neighbor to the wounded man who had showed mercy, the Lord says for the second time, Go and do thou in like manner. That is, remember that it is with such prompt mercy that you must love and sustain your neighbor who is in need. So what Bede is saying is, Jesus answers the lawyer twice. He says two things to the lawyer. The first time, he says, You've answered rightly. That is the, the correct way to attain eternal life. Um, he, he, he says this to affirm the right answer of the lawyer. But the second time, he speaks after relaying the parable to him. And when the lawyer answers again correctly, he says, go and do likewise. In other words, the first time he answers him, he's saying, you've got it right in your head. But the second time, he says, now you have to put it into practice. So Bede continues. And by this, he has most clearly revealed to us that it is charity alone, and not charity made uh, known by word only, but also proved by deed, which brings us to eternal life. So it's not just knowing that you need to love people, it's actually doing it. It's actually putting charity into practice. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, Who is my neighbor? How empty and foolish of vainglory, says Bede. This lawyer, who according to the judgment of the Lord was wise and learned in the law, first pretends that he does not know the command of the law, not because he desires to be humble among the little ones of Christ, but to justify himself, to capture the eyes of the crowd, by whom he would then be seen to answer wisely and well. He's not willing to humbly receive the blessed eyes that the Lord was talking about earlier, uh, with which he might have seen the hidden things of Christ. But the Lord answers him moderately, instead of rebuking him, in order that he may teach us that every man becomes a neighbor to whomsoever he shows mercy. This is the, that familiar service-level moral lesson of the parable. But, Bede adds, at the same time, this very parable describes in a special way the Son of God himself, who deigned by means of his humanity to become a neighbor to us. Now, this is the deeper meaning, what uh, the fathers call the allegorical or the spiritual meaning of the parable. What Bede is about to explain is the pretty standard view shared by St. Augustine, St. Ambrose, St. John Chrysostom, Origen, and many others. 
So B continues. And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. The man is interpreted as Adam, who stands for mankind. So this is what Bede's doing. This is how allegory works. By seeing in certain figures and actions in the story broader realities. The man, he tells us in the story, is Adam, who then more broadly we need to understand as all of humanity. Adam's name in Hebrew just means man. Bede continues, Jerusalem is that heavenly city of peace from from whose blessedness he, Adam, has fallen and from which he has come down to this mortal and unhappy life. And well does Jericho stand for this ever-changing present life. So Bede's telling us that the man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho is Adam, who has fallen from paradise to this mortal life, and thus bringing all of his progeny, us, with him. And he fell among robbers. Here, for robbers, understand the devil and his angels, among whom, as he came down, he fell. For had he not first, through pride, grown big within him, he would not so easily have fallen when tempted from without. True indeed are the words, the spirit is uplifted before a fall. He continues, who also stripped him. He explains that they deprived him of his of the glory of the garment of immortality and innocence. For this is the first robe with which, according to another parable, the prodigal son, returning through repentance, he was adorned and having lost it, our first parents saw themselves as naked and put on the skin garments of a nature now mortal. So this concept of the robe of glory that Adam and Eve had in paradise is all throughout the church fathers. Um, they weren't so much naked in paradise as clothed with glory, with light. But when they sinned and they lost that glory, that's when they first perceived themselves as naked. And the garments of skin that Genesis mentions uh, is usually interpreted by the church fathers as representing our fallen human nature our new flesh, what we wear, this nature. And having wounded him, they went away, leaving him half dead. Now the wounds, Bede says, are sins, by means of which they, the robbers, implanted in his weakened body a sort of seedbed, if I may say so, of growing death, profaning the integrity of human nature. They went away, but not as ceasing from their assaults, but to conceal their attacks by craft. They left him half dead, for though they were able to strip him of the blessedness of immortal life, they were not able to deprive him of the power of reason. For in that part of him in which he can taste and know God, man is alive. But in the part that has grown weak from sin and faints from wretchedness, he is dead, defiled by a mortal wound." So Bede is affirming for us the orthodox teaching that mankind, even with our fallen garments of skin, is still capable of turning to God, to responding to God's grace. And that's why we reject the the newfangled Calvinist teaching of uh, the total depravity of man, the idea that uh, we have zero power in us to choose God. That wouldn't be the case um, if if the robbers only left the man half dead. He's not totally deprived. He's not totally dead. He's only half dead. He still has the power to respond to God. 
And he continues, And it chanced that a certain priest went down the same way, and seeing him, passed by. In like manner also a Levite, when he was near the place and saw him, passed by. Bede explains, The priest and the Levite, who seeing the wounded man and passed by, signify the priesthood and the ministry of the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, in other words. When the wounds of the clean uh, sick could only be pointed out by the decrees of the law, but could not be cured by them. But what he's saying is, the law and the prophets, the law of the Old Testament, it was really good at pointing out, at recognizing the wounds of the man, but it could do nothing to heal them. For it was impossible, as the apostle says in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, that the blood of calves and lambs, or by the blood of goats, uh, could sin be taken away. So the law and the prophets couldn't do anything to actually heal the man. But a certain Samaritan, being on his journey, came near him, and seeing him was moved with compassion. The Samaritan, whose name means defender, now, whether or not that's the, uh, a very accurate etymology of the word Samaritan, it's certainly what most of the church fathers said that it means. Um, it comes from kind of a, an explanation of Samaria and what that means. So anyway, uh, Bede is saying that the, the, the very name Samaritan means defender, and this, of course, stands for the Lord, whom the prophet most fittingly implores to save him from falling among these robbers, uh, coming from Psalm 140, verse 9. Keep me from the snare which they have laid for me, he cries, and from the stumbling blocks of them that work iniquity. He who for us men and for our salvation, coming down from heaven, took the road of this present life and came near him who there laying perishing of the wounds inflicted on him, that is, being made in the likeness of men and in habit found as man, from Philippians 2, 7. He came close to us in his compassion and became our neighbor through the consolation of his mercy. So this Samaritan, the defender, Christ, also walks the road of this life with us, and he comes near to us so that he may have compassion on us. And going up to him, he bound his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. So he binds up the sins which he finds in men by rebuking them. This is interesting. What Bede's saying is the way the Lord actually binds up our wounds is by rebuking our sins, pointing them out, telling us to repent, inspiring with the fear of punishment those who sin and with hope those who repent. For he binds up our wounds when he commands us, repent. He pours oil when he adds, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he binds up our wounds, something that's a little bit painful when he tells us to repent, but when he adds, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he pours in oil. And, and he pours in wine also when he says, every tree that does not yield good fruit shall be cut down and cast into the fire. This binding, this healing of our wounds can be a painful process, but it's also the only thing that will save us. And setting him upon his own beast, brought him to an inn and took care of him. B tells us that this beast that the Lord puts us on is his own flesh in which he deigned to come to us. On it he placed the wounded man because he bore our sins in his body upon the tree. That comes from 1 Peter 2.24. So because he bore our sins on his body while he was on the tree, the parable says that he put the man, the wounded man, on his own beast. And according to another parable, um, he laid upon his shoulders the lost sheep that was found and brought it back to the flock. That comes from another chapter in Luke. 
And so to be placed upon his own beast is to believe in the incarnation of Christ and to be instructed in its mysteries and at the same time to be safeguarded from the assaults of the enemy. The inn that is in the parable is this present church where travelers returning to the eternal home are refreshed on their journey. And well does he bring him to the inn, um, this man that he placed on his own beast. For no one, unless he is baptized, unless he is united to the body of Christ, shall enter the church. In other words, there's no way that they can come into the church. There's no way that the man in the story could make it to the end had he not been born upon Christ, had he not been united to Christ's own body. And the next day he took out two pence and gave it to the host and said, take care of him. This next day on the morrow is uh, this time after the resurrection. For even before this, he had, by the grace of his gospel, enlightened those who sat in darkness in the shadow of death. But after his resurrection, there shone out even mightier the splendor of his perpetual light. The two pence are the two testaments, the Old and the New Testaments of the Scriptures, in which are contained the name and the image of the eternal King. For the end of the law is Christ. These he took out the next day and gave them to the host, for it was then he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. The next day the innkeeper received the denarii, the, the twopence, as payment for the taking care of the wounded man. And B tells us, For the Holy Spirit coming down taught the apostles all truth. That's them receiving uh, the, the payment, the, the denarii, the money. The Holy Spirit teaching them all truth by means of which they would be able to preach the gospel and to stand secure in instructing the Gentiles. And whatsoever, the story goes, thou shalt spend over and above, I at my return will repay thee. So Bede says, the innkeeper spends over and above the two pence he received when the apostle says, now concerning virgins I have no commandment of the Lord, but I give counsel. And again, so also the Lord ordained that they who preach the gospel should live by the gospel. But we have not used this privilege so as not to be a burden of any of you. But at his return, the debtor will repay what he has promised for the Lord, coming in judgment. And he shall say, Because thou hast been faithful over a few things, I will place thee over many things. Enter thou into the joy of my Lord. Which of these things, which of these three, in thy opinion, was the neighbor, Jesus asks, to him that fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, He that showed mercy. So from these words, Christ's mind has been made clear to us, that no one is more a neighbor to us than he who shows mercy, even one who is not a priest of the city of Jerusalem, even one not a Levite from the same race, for it was rather he who was merciful who became a neighbor. But receiving this in its more sacred sense, that is, in understanding the allegorical, the spiritual reading of this, uh, since no one is more our neighbor than he who has healed our wounds and let us love him, him as the Lord our God. Let us love him as our neighbor. For nothing is so close to the head as the head is to the members. Bede saying, of course he is the Lord our God, but in coming to us, in uniting himself with us, he's also become our neighbor. He's now one of our brethren. He's made himself even closer. Let us also love him who is an imitator of Christ. For this is what follows. And here is where the story ends. And Jesus said to him, Go and do thou in like manner. That is, 
show that you truly love your neighbor as yourself, doing with love whatever you can do to help, also in his spiritual necessities, to the praise and glory of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen. So this is Bede's sermon on our passage this morning. And he gives us the moral lesson that I think most of us are familiar with, and he also enlightens us about the spiritual reading of this. Now, the moral lesson on the surface and the deeper spiritual meaning, I think, are related in an important way. I was asked once by a friend, we were discussing um, God, the existence of God, whether or not he did exist. We are talking about morality and, and ethics and, and I, uh, I mentioned how all of morality, all of ethics, all of what we perceive as good and right and true come from God. And he asked, well, surely you don't have to believe in God to be a good person. And uh, I don't think you do. I don't think you have to believe in God to be a good moral person. But I think in order to make sense of your morals, you have to believe in God. I don't think... Without a transcendent, eternal source of goodness, truth, and beauty, of rightness, of true morality, of a sense of what is really right and really wrong, without a ground for all that that exists beyond this world of ours, none of that makes any sense. And here in this story, we have the the very intuitive sort of truth of moral goodness But in the deeper reading, we see where that truth comes from. See, doing the right thing for other people, you kind of, it feels intuitive to us who are trained in it. But, But where did we get this sense of right and wrong? Where does it actually come from? Is it a universal thing? Is it just a, uh, is it just a really highly evolved sort of primate society behavioral system? I think the source of true morality, of true right and wrong, comes from God himself. Not as a rule book that he's given us, but as an example of who he is in his person. In the deeper reading of this story, we see that God, who didn't have to, humbled himself, came down to where this man had ruined himself, uh, where he had let himself fall among robbers and thieves and was half dead, God comes to rescue him in the most remarkable way ever, not in power and might at a distance with his strong right arm, you know, the, God's uh, mighty right, right arm, but in humility. He showed his strength to rescue us in his very humility. The love that he demonstrates is who he is, and that is what fills this story with meaning. That's why we can perceive the rightness and the goodness of the behavior of the Samaritan in the story. And that's why we recognize that it's right to imitate the Samaritan, to be a good neighbor, because not, not because a rule book says so, not because the Bible tells me so. What the Bible tells us is that God is love. And in order to be united to that God of love, We have to become like him. We have to imitate him. It's not enough to just know the rule like the lawyer thought he did. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. He he repeated it. 
It was rote. He knew the answer. In order for it to really be effectual, you have to pay attention to what Jesus told him the second time. Now go and do likewise. It's our responsibility as Christians who want to be closer to God to live like God. In order to do that, we have to do what he does. And what does God do? What is the primary characteristic of God? Self-giving love. I'm delivering this as uh, the strongest storm in the known history of the United States is barreling down onto Florida right now, uh, forcing half the population to flee and the other half of the population is probably stuck behind. There's going to be a lot of devastation in the wake of this storm. And, uh, you know, we who have the means, I think, uh, have the responsibility to do whatever we can to help in this situation. That's the most obvious context of, uh, you know, showing love to our neighbors. But this lesson can be applied to every circumstance of our life. Our neighbor is not only uh, those next to us in the next state, but also those next to us every day at work and in our own homes. Showing the love of God to everyone around us is a full-time job. It's one I fail at regularly. I'm preaching to myself once again, like every time I stand up here and open my mouth. But thankfully, I'm not having to make this up on my own. We have the example of the Venerable Bede, who himself, writing in the late 600s, early 700s, is actually passing on earlier wisdom from uh, the church that came before him. And so this example down through the generations says the same thing to us over and over and over and over and over. God is love, and in order to be close to God, we too must become love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.